I'm, I'm really excited for today, excited to be together, and, um, and for our kids program. I think that that's, uh, man, special that we get to do that every year, and our Christmas Eve service too, just so you know, like, in my mind, that's kind of like, kind of like the Super Bowl, kind of, as it relates to um, the, the ways that we, that we gather as a church body, and not to slam anybody if, you're, if you just can't make it, um, but it's, it's just a, a real, I mean, I, I distinctly even remember many Christmas Eve services I've been a part of, even over just kind of your traditional gathering, um, just because it is like a, a real climax of hope. And the, the hope in that is that it would really spur us towards our current hope and towards like looking back allows us to look forward in a way that hopefully is a, is, is a lot more hopeful. And um, it, I was thinking, if you had like a dashboard of your life, and one of the things on your dashboard was hope, and it went from like one to ten, and instead of it being like green or like red at the top, it's green. It's like you, you want to be at a ten. Um, where would you feel like your dashboard is right now as it just relates to hope? to hope. The Oxford Dictionary gives, uh, gives a definition of hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. So a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. So just the question, like, what, what is your level of hope right now? What's my level of hope? So on a scale of 1 to 10. And then the question is, what is the driver of your hope, right? So you're like, man, I'm at a 10 that my football team wins, you know? Like, and I'm hoping that my football, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to win at fantasy football this year. You know, I'm at a 10 with that. Uh, or it might be something totally different that you're like, well, I'm at, a, a, I'm at a one or a zero with hope because of this situation that's happening in my life that I just don't see a way forward. Christmas reminds us, I think a, a power of this week a power of Christmas reminds us that hope will never be truly, like, our gauge will go like this, 110, 110, 110, 110, 110. If the nature of our hope is horizontal, if, if when we look across and we're like, okay, I'm hoping in that, I hope that, you know, someone notices my Amazon wish list and, and just buys a bunch of stuff and it shows up at my door or whatever. Like, if our hope is kind of like this, what Christmas reminds us is that it, it, will not, it will not be what we think it was going to be even when that thing is realized. When that package shows up or that situation comes about, it's going to be like, huh, I don't know, the hope was almost better than the resolution of the hope. But Christmas reminds us that, that when we look horizontally, hope takes us to one direction. But when we look vertically, that is the nature of what we're, we're stepping into this week, is, is when our hope is a vertical hope of us looking up, that we can actually find hope. And so what we're looking at this morning are intensely hopeful words, intensely hopeful words that came at a time where there was no hope. And so it's kind of weird, but when you think of Christmas, you probably don't think of the Assyrians 
and the battles of the Assyrians in the 8th century BC in the Middle East. You know, you're just like, haven't connected those dots, you know. But uh, I want to propose to us this morning that the more we focus on understanding what was happening in the 8th century BC in the Middle East of all places has a profound impact on us today in rural central Iowa. And what was happening at this time is that the Assyrians were the greatest threat to all people. So if you say, hey, who is the superpower in the 8th century BC anywhere, it would be the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are known for their brutality. It's believed that crucifixion itself was, was designed by the Assyrians. Uh, then the Romans came after the Assyrians, and they adopted some of the most brutal practices of the Assyrians. But the Assyrians were, were really good at psychological warfare. Um, they would terrorize you at just the thought of them before you actually saw them and were terrorized by their actual strength as well. So 8th century BC, and we're getting to a Christmas message. Just going to let you know, uh, starting with a downer, but hopefully we don't stay there. Um, but the way that the Assyrians did their thing was that they would take their military and they would surround a city. So at that time, cities had thick walls around them. Archaeologists have found 20 feet thick walls around Jerusalem that date to this time period, okay? So we're talking serious walls around cities to protect cities. So what would happen is an army would come to a city and they would surround a city and then they would wait. It's called siege warfare. They would wait around a city. They waited around Samaria, the capital of northern Israel. They waited them out for three years. Imagine for 36 months... Every day you wake up, you see the people that are, what they're doing is they're cutting off all supplies, they're cutting down all the trees, they're making sure no water gets in there, they're going to assume you're going to get super sick, you're going to get super weak, and by the time we bust down the, the doors, you don't have any fight left in you. It's mentally and physically already, you've already lost before we actually try to defeat you, okay? So the Assyrians have already done that to Samaria, the capital in the north, in 722 BC, and now it's 700 BC. So for over 20 years, the Assyrians have been doing this in cities of Israel. I mean, COVID is bad, but it's not this type of bad. You know, uh, COVID can, and just, it feels like the last couple of years have just kind of been a, like, darkness, you know, kind of the lights feel like they're being dimmed a little bit. This is a, like, the lights are out. Like, we don't even know where the light bulbs are anymore. Like, I mean, every day we're assuming it's probably our last day, last day of our family. You know, we don't have any fight left in us, all this stuff. So the unthinkable happens after three years of defeating Samaria is the Assyrians then start heading towards Jerusalem, okay? But before they get to Jerusalem, they go to a city called Lachish, and so they surround Lachish, they're waiting out Lachish, and while they're at Lachish, they, they destroy Lachish. So Lachish is totally destroyed, and we actually, if you're like, well, maybe this happened, maybe this didn't happen. If you go to London today, and you go to the British Museum, they found um, through, they dug many, many, many feet below the sand, and they found the palace of the Assyrians, they found the, the king's palace during this time, 
and they've reconstructed a lot of it in the British Museum. And I've got a picture here. So um, this picture is one of the... So this is in the British Museum today. Um, and then you'll see what it is, is it's artwork all along the walls. So in this palace, there was artwork. All the walls weren't just like drywall. It was, um, it's called a, a bas relief or a bas relief, where, you know, if you touch it, yeah, so it's, this is all the way around it, okay? And so what would happen is when you were waiting to see the emperor of Assyria, Sennacherib was his name, when you were waiting to see Sennacherib, the waiting room was an intimidation room. And it's like 80 feet by 40 feet, and it's this intimidation room to basically be like, hey, if you're getting ready to meet with Sennacherib to tell him, like, your country isn't, who's been defeated, like, your country isn't planning on paying the annual tax or whatever, like, you're going to be well reminded of what happens to people who resist. So if you see all of those little, like, um, like pyramid type things, that represents a helmet of every Assyrian warrior. So it's meant to show you the absolute consuming force that would surround you. And then this is, this is uh, Israelites in the 8th century BC with their beards and all that stuff bowing down to Sennacherib and worshiping him, basically. And there's all sorts of really grotesque parts of this uh, scene, too. But one of the things that's amazing is when Hezekiah in Jerusalem is hearing that Lachish has fallen, Hezekiah says, we need to ask God if we're going to make it. And Hezekiah says, how do, we, how do we find out if we're going to make it? And so Hezekiah is like, hey, let's ask the main prophet that's alive right now, the main prophet that's writing books of the Bible, the main prophet that it seems like God is speaking to, let's ask the prophet if we're going to make it. So the prophet that's alive at this time is Isaiah. And when Hezekiah asks Isaiah, are we going to make it? Isaiah does a lot of stuff, but ends up saying, um, Sennacherib will be dead before any of us, which ends up historically being true. But another thing that's really fascinating is that this is the battle of Lachish in the intimidation room of the emperor after Sennacherib. And the, one of the reasons this is so important is this would be like going somewhere where the, the president of some land had created this whole room depicting how they defeated the biggest superpower of the day or defeated all this stuff. And Lachish would be like Boston. So if you were going to like say, hey, I, we defeated Boston, but you'd be like, yeah, but did you defeat Washington, D.C. or just Boston? And what's make kind of a long story short here, what is so amazing about this um, in the British Museum is it proves they never got to Jerusalem. Because if they would have gotten to Jerusalem and defeated Jerusalem, that would have been a far greater prize because that's where the God of Israel's uh, temple is. So the best they could do was brag about defeating Lachish instead of brag about defeating Jerusalem. So even in the British Museum, it's proving the details of Scripture at this time. Now, one of the things of like, why in the world are we focusing so much on a battle that happened uh, 2,800 years ago, 2,700 years ago, is because I think some of Earth's most hopeful words, some of Earth's most hopeful words 
were written down in the atmosphere of this battle and the atmosphere of that much darkness when they're like, I don't even know if we're going to make it to tomorrow. That's how little hope I have. I don't know if we're going to make it to tomorrow. And Isaiah sits down and God directs him to write some of the most hopeful words. It was words of light in dark times. So we'll start with verse 1 of Isaiah 9 to hopefully soak up these words for our time like they soaked up these words for their time. So verse 1 of Isaiah 9, the scripture will be on the screen. We do have Bibles over there. If you'd like to grab one on the connect table, you can have it, take it with you. Verse verse 1 of Isaiah 9 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So the Assyrians had already destroyed the area that was known as Zebulun and Naphtali. They had already destroyed that. So these people are living in ruins. In Zebulun and Naphtali, they're living in ruins in the northern territory. And um, what is being written is saying, hey, this is not the end of the story. What will happen in Galilee will make, he has made glorious the way of the sea. What will happen around the Sea of Galilee will be glorious. It's going to happen. Which we know this is where Jesus starts his ministry. So this is 700 years before Jesus starts his ministry. God's like, this is going to be glorious. But now it's ruined. But here's what it looks like to be made glorious. Look at verse 2. Here's what it looks like to be made glorious. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And I think a lesson about not just like the details of what's being communicated, but a lesson about the heart of God and how God interacts with us how God interacted with them is that our God makes promises for us to live on. Our God makes promises to live on. He knows it's dark. Sometimes he's, he's let our world get really dark. And here in verse 2, he just simply says, to those living in deep darkness, a light is going to shine. It's simple. It's profound. On those living in darkness, a light's going to come on. A light's going to shine. There's hope. Thanks, brother. Hope that it's not always going to be this dark. Hope that it's not always going to be this dark. To those who live in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then we start being like, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to turn the lights on? What does it look like living in darkness for light to shine? What does that look like? Starting verse 6. For to us, a child is born. I mean, it's super unexpected, right? Like, the Assyrian military is surrounding us. And Isaiah is writing, you know, we don't know, like, is, like, the dust falling in from, like, you know, is it kind of like, 
is he under like distress even almost as he's penning it and he's like, for to us a child is born. Like that is the environment that this ray of light is shining in. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, imagine if life feels dark and you're like, I need a referral to a specialist. It's like, okay, you need a referral to a specialist. Uh, what type of a specialist? Well, I would, I would really appreciate Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think that could do some good <laughs> to, my, to my soul, to, to all of me. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of his government and the increase of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I think what's crazy is for 700 years, these verses were out there as hope. For 700 years, people were living on this. They were living in the reality of this in the midst of deep darkness. I mean, things would get, we would go 400 years before Jesus came with, with any words from prophets, with any new scripture. And so we had 300 years of it getting progressively darker, 400 years of it getting progressively darker, and people were living on this hope for 700 years that it's, this child is coming, but he's a son. The one coming is, a, is, is not a wonderful counselor, but is wonderful counselor, the wonderful counselor, is God himself, mighty God, everlasting Father. Somehow this one that's coming can say, I and the Father are one. He can say he's God himself, and he can also say he's a son, and he's Prince of Peace. And there will be this ever-increasing rule of his government and ever-increasing peace that will never end. And man, like, doesn't that sound really nice? Like, wouldn't you vote for a government if you knew, hey, it will start at peace and it will progressively increase to more and more and more and more peace and it will never go back down. Peace will only increase. David, in other places, calls this one coming his Lord. People are chewing on this for 700 years. The zeal of God himself will see it through. It's like, man, we might mess this up. We might not, like, you know, we might vote for the wrong guy or something. We might mess this up and say, no, I will make sure this happens. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will see this through. We even see prophesied here. And we can put our hope in this one coming, even if we wait actively for 700 years. So a second lesson, I think, for us to learn about the heart of God is that our God exceeds our hope. They wanted to be rescued by the Assyrians, or rescued from the Assyrians, not by the Assyrians. Um, and God did that. He did. Like, God did rescue him. That's what we see in the British Museum. You could walk in there and be like, huh, 
he didn't get Jerusalem. Like, he didn't. This would have been all Jerusalem. This is all Lachish. He never got there. What Isaiah said on the short term was true, and what, but then it didn't just stop there. Then he gave us just this incredible Hail Mary pass of what things are going to look like down the road, that he himself would come. They didn't know that they were so bad to need this. They didn't know he was so good to do this. People didn't know more revelation was needed. People didn't know how big the chasm was between us and a perfectly holy God. God was planning a rescue for us 2,700 plus years ago. Plus, because there are prophecies even before this, and it's clear that in the heart of God, this was all along the direction that our redemption was going to come. And people didn't fully appreciate what this was going to cost him. Look at the further revelation that's given to Isaiah. So Isaiah writes verse, uh, chapter 53. Many of you are familiar with chapter 53. So later he keeps writing in, in chapter 53, verse 4. This prince of peace coming will play out in a way that we wouldn't have expected. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Every human that has ever read these words can place their name in here. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. His humiliation brought me peace and brought me into a kingdom where he rules and that ruling is increasing and his peace is increasing. A third lesson for here to learn about the heart of God is our God paid a great price for our hope. He isn't just throwing out empty words. Like, hey, just sun will come out tomorrow. You know, he, he's not just throwing out these hopeful words. He's putting the full collateral of his life behind these words to make them trustworthy. Worth trusting for, I mean, we're not going to actively be trusting for 700 years, but that we can tell our kids, hey, he's coming back. Tell your kids he's coming back. Make sure they tell their kids he's coming back. It is as trustworthy as anything I can trust in, anything I can hope in, and it's a hope that is vertical that doesn't disappoint and isn't empty. He wants to make sure, though, that we don't just watch this happening. Like, we aren't, like, on the sidelines of history being, like, fascinating. That's a fascinating narrative that I'm observing here. Like, he doesn't want us on the sidelines observing some, some seismic narrative, he actually wants us to personally know about his coming and to make it personal for each of us. Look how Jesus began his ministry. This is super fascinating. Look how Jesus began his ministry in Matthew 4. Now, in Matthew 4, he could just show up and be like, I'm here. He could have had this huge party like in Rome at some really elite neighborhood and just been like, I am here. You know, I'll start teaching you about myself and all that stuff. In Matthew 4, look at this. 
starting verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee, area around the sea, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So you're like, oh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Uh, Then look where he goes with it, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See how he fulfills prophecy and makes it crazy personal. And this is a final lesson for us to learn about the heart of God this morning, is our God invites us each to respond. He invites us each to respond to this. And for a while I wondered, like, why say repent and why say the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Like, you just be like, I'm here, this guy. Like, why not say that? Why say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And I think one of the things is repent is like, hey, I'm going this way. Nope, I'm going this way. Like, that is repentance. That is repentance. There can be sorrow attached to it. There could be a, like, this is not, the Spirit can convict you and say, this is a road that leads to death. This is a road that leads to life. I repent. I turn. I'm going this direction. So it's like, repent, turn from any direction you are going, any hopes you are having, turn. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now remember how the prophecy is saying the increase of his government, the increase of peace will never end, right? And to me, it was like, why did he say the kingdom of heaven is at hand? You know, like the administration is here or something. Like, it sounds a little weird in some ways, but I think it's really humble of Jesus. Because when you, like if BJ and I are just face to face and BJ looks at me and is like, Tim, the kingdom is here. You know, I'd be like, well, I think why Jesus says that to us is because he's the king. He's the king of the kingdom. So he could say the king is here, but he says the kingdom's in front of you. Uh, I'm the king. I'm the king of that kingdom. You've been waiting 700 years for me to be here, and I am here. Like your hope is fulfilled. The king is here. My kingdom is on the move. It will only increase from here. It will start small, and it will only increase from here. The peace that comes from that will only increase from here. And, um, man, for him to be the king means that we aren't the king of our lives. For him to be the king of his kingdom means that we say that to him. We, we see him that way. We, we live our lives that way. And a lot of us want heaven without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. And, and what he's offering to us is, hey, turn. I'm here. I'm your king. I am good. I'm calling you to repent, to be part of the kingdom of heaven with, with him as our king. And as people actively waited with this hope, 700 plus years for this first coming, I mean, it got so dark, uh, then the light shined in their darkness. 
And we could say a huge, amazing thing of us being the church is Jesus is saying, I am alive and well. I am building a church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I am on the move. And he says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to rescue you. I'm coming back for you. And I will take you with me. And that will be heaven forever. And we've been, they waited 700 years actively. And we've been waiting 2,000 years actively. And we could, at one sense, be like, man, I wish he would have come back 10 years ago. But then it's like, well, there's a lot of people here who hadn't repented yet. Even in this room, where I'm like, I'm glad he waited. I'm really glad he waited. I'm glad he's waiting through today. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe uh, we'll have a surprise at the end of the service and Jesus will come back. That would be wonderful. Um, But he has told us that we should abide in him until that time. He has told us that he is the one that is building the church that is unseen, but we see it because we see what he's doing in our lives. The definition of faith he gives us in Hebrews 11.1 is faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I mean, a massive question just for all of us, and this is a perfect week Every week is an ideal week for this, but a great week this week where we really hone into this is just, is this your hope? Can you say, yeah, this is my hope. Like, I need him to reignite that in my heart to actively have hope in him coming based on where, like, knowing he has come and he's coming again. Do we wait for him with hope or do we dread that day of like, oh, gosh, that's where I hope my good has outweighed my bad. And I just want to tell you, like, if you're, like, a little scared of that day, that, like, that's where my good has outweighed my bad, I hope so. You don't, he loves you too much to let that be a we'll find out situation. Loves us all way too much. His invitation is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And trying to remove all of the churchy language from that is, if, if you have your life and you come up to Jesus and say, okay, I'm learning about my, like, the impact of my sin on our relationship. I'm learning about what you've done for me and all that stuff. I want to learn more and more and more. But right now I know enough to say, I am giving my life to you. And you give me all that you did on my behalf. All that you did so that I can go to bed at night and say, man, if this is my last day, I'm walking straight into his hands, straight into his arms. I know that I know that I'm his. And that is a hope that I hope not only floods us, but floods this community. That like this is, what, this is worth the, the greatest pains that people would be able to experience the greatest joys which is hope in Jesus. So would each of us today just actively look to him for our hope that our Savior has come, he is working, and he's coming, and that's hope to live on. And so what we're going to step into now is communion, which is us, uh, a danger in any church situation is for us to to leave with the thought of, man, I got to try harder. I got to stop being the X and I got to start being Y and I got to try really hard 
And I'm gonna, by next week, I'll have this all figured out by trying hard. And what communion tells us is like, no, what we need to do is meet with him. We need to turn our heart towards him. We need to commune with him to say, what you are instructing me to do, I cannot do unless you do it in my life. Do it through me, you know? It's like a coach telling you, make a three-pointer, and you go up and try, and you just like airball. And you got to go up to coach and be like, I want to do what you want me to do. I don't know how to. Can you show me? That is communing with a coach. And this is communing with our Savior of saying, ignite this hope inside of me. Ignite your plan for me. Ignite in me the things that I can't ignite inside myself. And the way that, uh, um, that my dad and Chad will be serving us today is that uh, what we'll do is we'll, I would just encourage you to meet with him for a little bit, pray, and then we'll come down the center aisle and just hold your hand out like this, and they'll rip off some of the bread and say, uh, this is his body given for you. Uh, then take wine or juice, obey your conscience there, and we'll describe a little bit more of that later. Uh, but what I would encourage you is, if you are not at this time someone who's like, I don't know where I am with Jesus, I'm not sure if I've given my life to Jesus, I would just love for you to interact with him around that and just say, hey, Show me, is this true? Show me, is this what you have for me? I'd love to talk with you about that too, but I encourage you, don't come to the table. That really won't mean that much to you, but I encourage you to come to Jesus, to, to move towards him. And then for those of us who, who have put our trust in Jesus, let's, let's commune with him for a while, then let's come and take the elements. We'll take the elements, we'll remain standing, and we'll take it together as family.